Well, I can say that our plan worked. We have, if you know, we've been working to restructure the church to move people from the second service to the first service, and we successfully moved about 130 people this morning by moving equipping hour and youth activities to the second service. So now it's time to invite your friends. We've got extra seats here this morning. Acts 14, we are jumping back into Paul and his companions. They are this missionary group sent out from the church in Antioch to go into Gentile territory. They are in the region of Galatia now, planting churches, sharing the gospel. We can see Paul assuming the, the role that we have most of us have in mind when we think of Paul, the leader of the Gentile uh, Gentile church planting movement. He is firmly in charge now. It's no longer Barnabas and Saul or Barnabas and Paul. This is Paul and his companions, and they are going and they are sharing the gospel. And as we look at the way that Luke has described these stories, something really jumped out to me very clearly this week because there's a lot that we could learn in terms of church planting and missions from this passage. But the thing that really jumped out at me this week as I was looking at this passage is just the reality that the gospel will always be opposed. And those who want to live a life that displays and communicates both non-verbally and verbally the reign and rule of Jesus Christ in this world, those people will be opposed. And I was thinking about the disciples early on in their ministry and how this probably wasn't exactly what they were envisioning when Jesus said, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. Because unlike regular, uh, unlike being fishers of men, when you you have fish, literal fish, they don't throw stones. (laughs) They don't fight you. I I went flounder gigging on Friday night and not a one of the flounders fought back in any real way. But being a fisher of men and women is different. People are going to oppose this message. They are going to fight back, and sometimes it is very serious, as we will see in this text. So I want to walk through these stories in these two cities of Iconium and Lystra, and I want us to see three really important things about the opposition that people who desire to display and communicate the gospel will face as Christians. And so the first is that gospel opposition comes from the gospel. Seems pretty counterintuitive there, all right? We've got to go over to Iconium in the beginning of this passage to see this. And it's sad that I have to make this point. Gospel opposition comes from sharing the gospel, but it is a point that we have to make because there are people who feel very affirmed when opposition comes their way. They, They feel like, you know, they can place them in this story, not realizing that the opposition they're getting has nothing to do with the gospel. This opposition is coming because they're being condescending jerks. You know, that, that, that's an opposition, but it's not the opposition that, that we see in this passage. There's no promises for that kind of opposition. Or, you know, the opposition that we face just because people disagree with our conservative social values, okay? That's a type of opposition, but that's not opposition that comes from gospel proclamation. That's something that's different. That's what we see in this passage. Verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. 
So Paul makes a point of highlighting how it is that Paul spoke. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But however it is he spoke, we know the result was that people believed. And that only happens from the gospel being proclaimed. So we know that Paul is communicating the gospel. No watered down form of the gospel. No synchronized cultural version of the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is proclaiming. And then verse 3 says that they stayed in Iconium for a very long time, whatever that is. And they spoke boldly boldly for the Lord. So they are speaking boldly for the Lord. They are preaching the gospel. And as a result, the unbelieving Jews decide to team up with the unbelieving Gentiles. And together, they are going to oppose this gospel movement that's coming into their city. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about this a good bit, how there was nothing in the Roman culture that would bring Jews and Gentiles together. Nothing except the gospel. And and the gospel does this in two ways, apparently. Some, as we looked two weeks ago, sometimes it brings Jews and Gentiles together through belief in the gospel. But in our passage, we see Jews and Gentiles coming together in their unbelief and creating a partnership to be able to oppose this message that's coming into their city. As this isn't a new concept, you can go back to the Gospels and see in Jerusalem, the arch enemies of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they team up to oppose Jesus. You see it today when you see unlikely bedfellows that are made up of atheists and agnostics and even nominal Christians who want to oppose the, our teaching of the exclusivity of Jesus. That is that Jesus is the only way. You see very different types of people who want to come together and oppose that, that teaching. But opposition will come. However it comes, it will come when the gospel is proclaimed. And Paul says to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 2, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. So he's saying that when we live for Jesus, when we proclaim the gospel, a, a fragrance of, ty- a, a, a type of fragrance is emitted metaphorically. And, and some people, they're going to smell this and they are going to, they're going to, it's going to be for them the fragrance of life. And to others, they're going to smell it and to them, it's going to be the very stench of death. They want nothing to do with it. And what Paul is communicating is when people are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting Jesus. Jesus Jesus is the aroma. And to switch metaphors, Jesus talks about himself not only being an aroma, but being the light in John 3. Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people have loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So when I wake up my kids in the morning, I flip on a light, all right? And due to age and disposition, they all respond very differently. Some of them pull their covers over their head and they pull the pillows over their eyes as if I am a murderer coming to get them. And others leap out of bed as if I'm here to save them from the monster that is sleep. (laughs) I, I did the same thing in every room, just turn on the light, but how they reacted was very different depending on who they are and how much sleep they, how old, lots of factors, but they responded differently. I don't control how they respond. My duty is just turn on the light and get them to wake up in the morning. And in the same way, when we share the gospel, there is a type of light that shines And again, it's not us, it's the light of Jesus Christ. How people respond 
is not always up to us. I guess technically is not ever up to us. Now, I should say, we need to communicate, when we communicate the gospel, we want to do this with clarity and wisdom and winsomeness. We want to be humble in the way that we do it. We want to be good listeners and, and, and understanding of who we're talking to, all of those things. Out, we really matter when it comes to sharing the gospel. I, our words matter. I will, I will argue this until I'm blue in the face, that how we do it, it matters. But we have to hold this intention this, with the reality that God has a part too. It is not just up to us. And again, Paul, he, he pulls at this in the church in Corinth. And he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with others as with ourselves, excuse me, as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul is quoting something here. Does anybody know what he's quoting? The first service was more awake than you all this morning. What? He says, let there be light. What is he quoting? Genesis 1. So just as God said, let there be light in Genesis 1 and light shone all around the universe in the same way for somebody to believe, God has to similarly say, let there be light. Because when we share the gospel, light shines. That they don't see it. We can't control that. God has to say, let there be light. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4. So what we do really matters, but God at the end of the day is the one who has to say, let there be light and open our eyes. So Paul is using this, this light metaphor. And I, I, I wonder, I think he's, he's pulling on what Jesus is saying, using this light metaphor. Jesus is the light, but he's doing it to identify the core problem of every un- unbeliever and our core problem before we believed. And that problem is blindness. Blindness is the problem. There is light. When, when we share the gospel, light shines. That they can't see it. That's the problem. And if we understand that the core problem is fundamentally blindness, it should it should change the way that we view opposition. It should make us more compassionate. It's, it, 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 they can't see it. it sh- you know, if, if we come across someone who can't see physically, that, that bleeds, we bleed compassion for that person. We want them to have the ability to see, and we lament the fact that they can't. So we should have the same disposition in the spiritual world too. But it should also make us more bold more bold because we know we're freed of the burden of having to be the one that cures blindness. We can't cure blindness. Only God can do it. But we see here, it is God who does it. And he does it by just speaking a word. And so that should make us bold. And I think about Paul. There's some irony here. And, and a friend's social media post prompted me in this direction. But, but you have Paul who was the main person opposing Christians. He was dragging them out of their homes. He was in, putting them in prison, and in some cases, murdering them for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this same Paul is the one who is opposed because he himself has become a Christian. And I wonder when Paul died, you know, what was that like? And I I have every belief that he went to be with Jesus. The, The great cloud of witnesses is there. They're welcoming him home, and among that group, 
cheering as loud as any are the people Paul murdered. I mean, that's how the gospel works. And if that's how it's viewed in the heavenly realms, those who were opposed by Paul, how should that affect our humility and compassion when we think about those opposing us now? Wherever the gospel goes, there will be opposition. We will face it. It'll be different in different types of the world and different seasons, but it is always there. And tonight, we're starting our Sermon on the Mount study, and, and Jesus, when he talks about persecution, it's just assumed. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Again, not because we're jerks. <laughs> for my name's sake, blessed are those because Jesus knew that he is sending all of us into enemy territory no matter when and where we live. Derek Thomas, when he was back at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, preaching on this text, he said, whenever you talk about Jesus, whenever you lift up a prayer request, wherever you honor his sweet name, be prepared for the hostility and venom and spite and utter hatred of the kingdom of darkness that you will experience. So that's the first thing. The second is that as the gospel gains ground, opposition usually grows too. As the gospel gains ground, the opposition is going to become more threatened and more serious. So we're going to go from Iconium to Lystra right now. Paul and his companions, they get wind in Iconium of this plot to stone them. And so they flee to Iconium, which this is an important parenthetical here. We're not as Christians praying for persecution, looking for a fight, looking for persecution. Every example in the New Testament that we have where persecution comes up, if they can flee it, they do. That's important. So they flee over to Lystra, which is where we pick up the story. And it starts with, with a miracle that I think should sound familiar to most of us. So Paul walks up to this man. He is a crippled man who has been that way since birth. He has never walked. Paul looks at him and says, stand straight up. And he does in front of everybody. And so does that sound familiar? Peter back in Jerusalem, almost the exact same thing. Peter walks up to a man, says he's lame from birth, never, never had walked, and Peter says, rise and walk, and he does. And there have been some people who have accused Luke of being a little lazy here. <laughs> you know, clearly Luke got bored or lazy, and he just took this other story, put it in here with Paul. That's all that's going on. That's not at all what I think is going on. Actually, L Luke is esteemed above all of the New Testament writers for his accuracy to historic and geographic detail. He, he's been esteemed that way for 2,000 years, and even more so in recent history as we have had archaeological knowledge that we did not have before, then we see all the details that Luke is talking about here confirmed through the archaeological sciences. I think what Luke is doing is something very different. When Peter healed that guy in Jerusalem, he was sitting in front of the temple. So there's a communication of something about God's power there, something very significant about God's power to save. Where we pick this up in Lystra, almost certainly, most scholars point this out, almost certainly he's at the Greek temple, the pagan temple. I mean, if you've ever been to other countries, you know, places like the Vatican, it's surrounded by people who have needs and lots of different needs. Surely he is at this pagan temple. 
And so what's being communicated by Paul going and doing the same miracle here is God's power is not limited to Jerusalem. God's power will go anywhere, can go anywhere, and is wherever the gospel is being proclaimed. So you have this physical manifestation of this spiritual truth going on here right off the bat in Lystra. And so the result is that lots of people believe and things get a little weird. So they, they believe, they're amazed at what's going on and they immediately, as you know, if we had a nickel for the time, for every time this happened, they think they're Zeus and Hermes. They think that, that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes and they worship them as such, which sounds crazy to us, but because we don't know a lot of the context for what's going on here. They actually had really good cultural context to draw that inaccurate conclusion. So, a little primer on Zeus and, and Hermes. Has anybody read Ovid's Metamorphosis? Anybody? Okay, we have a few. We had four in the first service. I don't think I've ever read the whole thing. I'm familiar with the story. But what we know is that you have the Greek god Zeus, and then Hermes speaks for Zeus. So that's why they immediately thought that that Paul, who was speaking, must be Hermes, and that makes Barnabas Zeus. But in Ovid's Metamorphosis, there's the story of, of, then it was Jupiter and Mercury. It's that's Zeus and Hermes just uh, in Latin and in Greek. So same gods, basically Zeus and Hermes come to this city of Lystra and they are, they take on the form of man and they go home to home finding somebody to take them in. Well, they go to over a thousand homes and did not find anybody to take them in until they came to the home of this elderly couple. This elderly couple let them in and as a reward to them, they make their home a temple and they make, they, they, they make them in service to the, to the temple in their name in that town. He also, they also give these two uh, one last wish. They wish that they would be able to die together after living a long life so they would not have to see each other die, which is, you know, made me think this week. I always say, I hope Angela and I live long lives and she dies one day before I do. I, I digress a little bit, but it's good. When, if, if she does die before me, that next day is going to be a little interesting. <laughs> always looking around. Is it today of the day? Anyway, I digress. So that was the reward for these two. But as a punishment, everybody who did not welcome them into their homes, they were destroyed, their homes were destroyed, their families were destroyed. So culturally here, they don't want to make that mistake again. <laughs> so, I mean, you see, it's, it's, a, it's, an illogical, it's a wrong conclusion, but it's not illogical given the things that they believed at that time. So they worship them as Zeus and Hermes. They have cultural context for doing this, and I did... You know, I've never had anybody worship me as Zeus or Hermes. I guess there's still time, but it's never ha- hadn't happened yet. But I did have something happen to me once that was a little similar. And in the sermon review process, the people involved said, Jim, you can't tell this story. You've told that story too many times. I went back and looked. I've told it twice. I only have one life experience. They swear I said it more than twice. In any case, the story's gonna be retired <laughs> after this. So this is the last time for a while. When I was in Pisa, Italy, I, I was cleaning out our car and uh, I was walking home with eight umbrellas because in, in Pisa it rains all the time. They, actually, the Italians call it the urinal of Italy because it rains all the time. Yeah, not the best imagery. All right, so I'm walking back with seven umbrellas in my arm, one over my head, 
because it's raining, and I pass this apartment, and I notice this older woman, I said older, I was 24, she's probably like my age, but she was old to me then, and, and I passed her, and I had this just deep sense that I need to go give her an umbrella, and it sounds like such a little thing, but it wasn't just my conscience, it wasn't, this was, this was like God's telling me to do it, like it was so deep, I had never experienced anything like that in my life, so I turn around, and I go to her, and I said, ma'am, would you like an umbrella, and she said, no, I don't have any money, and I realized it did look like I was an opportunistic <laughs> umbrella salesman. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to sell you an umbrella. I'm just off, I know it's raining, you don't have one, I'm offering you one for free. And she paused and she starts crying, just not full on, but tears rolling down. And she said, do you know I just prayed, God, would you send me an angel with an umbrella? And for the rest of the conversation, I had to convince her I'm not an angel, <laughs> but I, I might in some way be sent. And so given the cultural context, what's going on, you know, when something supernatural happens, they can come, they, people are willing to come to supernatural answers, but if they're not informed by the Bible, that's going to get us off a little bit. So that's what's happening there. These huge crowds have gathered. The, the priests are ready to sacrifice to these two things, and it, it seems from the text they, they it says they barely stopped them. So whatever that looks like, they barely stopped them and they won the people over to Jesus. And now as, as the gospel gains more ground, you see the opposition grow too. And it's really interesting to see what Paul does at this moment. He, the way that he, he steers this, he rebukes them, they tear their clothing, and then they begin to share the gospel with them. And the way they share the gospel, if you know how this happens in, in the progression of the New Testament, it's unlike any other way that he shared the gospel before. So when he would go to these different towns, he, would go, he, he does go first to the synagogue, but here, they're not in the synagogue. He's preaching to a Gentile pagan audience, and there is no use of the law, there are no prophecies, there's no Old Testament, there are no Psalms anywhere in this because those pagans don't know those things. So Paul takes an entirely different route to telling them about Jesus. So I'm gonna pick up uh, in verse 15. Paul says, we also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So we look at the way Paul is talking about God and we have to ask a very important question. Is Paul saying that all we need to do to be saved is to believe in a God who creates and provides? Because there's no mention of Jesus here. There's no mention of resurrection or atonement or any of that, st that stuff. And the answer is absolutely no. That's not what Paul's doing. What Paul's doing, and what Luke is not showing us his full gospel presentation. He's showing us his starting point. There's a very different starting point with a bunch of pagans than Jews in a synagogue. And Paul understands that. He discerns this. And 
you know, I'm not against gospel tracts. I've used gospel tracts. Uh, when I came to faith, a gospel tract was used in my life. What I am against is this idea that there's one size fits all way to share the gospel with people in any kind of context. And let Paul be exhibit A that that is not true. Paul's discerning. He sees that they're in different starting points. A Muslim is going to have a different starting point than someone who is de-churched. A de-churched person is going to have a different starting point than someone who is unchurched. At my gym that I go to, it's like cla- we, we work out in classes and it's often the same people. And a couple weeks ago, there was a woman who's from a very different part of the world. And she asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a pastor. And she looked at me and she said, I've never met a real pastor before. <laughs> and she had a smile on her face. So I guess that was good. And, you know, the, the, her starting point is probably going to be different than, say, the guy that I work out with over here who grew up going to church, but his kids' activities just got too busy, so he stopped. There's just different starting points, and that's what Luke is allowing us to see here. And so, the people believe, he, they barely curbed this, this worship service for Barnabas and Paul. They're now worshiping Jesus. And what's clear, as this gospel movement grows, the opposition does too. So you have unbelieving Jews and Gentile leaders. They are threatened, they join together, and they, they, they ramp up their opposition. Opposition to the gospel. Again, the core problem is, is blindness, right? So if you can't see the glorious light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then the main thing that informs the decisions that we make are our own idols that are led by our own sin. And, and usually, the, the, the top two tend to be money and power. There, there are others all over the place, but money and power are at play here. They're at play in other texts, so we're going to stick with money and power. You have power being threatened because these, these Jewish leaders, by many of their congregations, are not, or they're, they're not considered the leaders anymore because they're now following the instruction of Barnabas and Saul. You have the Gentile leaders who, who certainly no longer have the influence in their city now that everybody's following Barnabas and Saul, so they're threatened. Makes me think of the church in Ephesus. You know, Luke describes the beginnings of the church in Ephesus, which is every church planter's dream. I, I mean, massive revival. The city embraces Jesus. Luke says at one point, there, was n- there were none who had not heard the name of Jesus. They were burning books. They were giving themselves to like dark arts books, not like anywhere. All right, so, but what happened is the economy began to change. So we're hitting this idol of money here. People were not buying the meat sacrificed to idols the way that they were. They're not buying the trinkets that of uh, the, the Greek goddess Artemis that, whose main temple was there in Ephesus, and a riot breaks out. So what we see in lots of these passages is as the gospel movement gains traction, the, operate, the opposition can become desperate and need new ways to, and more dire ways to oppose the gospel. And you know, I even think about today, we, we talk about a desire to see a, a revival in Orlando, to see lots of people come to know Jesus. And I think we take a misstep when we think that if there were a revival in the city, that would just make everything easier for us, right? The Christian ethic would prevail. Uh, people, we, we wouldn't have political disagreements because we'd vote the same. It would just make it a, a nice, easier environment to live in, raise our kids, raise our grandkids in. Well, biblically, that's not a right understanding. It would not make all things easier. Some things would get a lot harder. I mean, imagine if there was, we're, we're like the 
third city in the world, I think, for sex trafficking. What if all that, all that market went away? Nobody was buying it here. Like, there, there would be people who are making a lot of money who would be upset about that. I mean, and, and, and you know, you can take a few steps down in, in severity and say, well, you know, what if tens, hundreds of thousands of people, by God's grace and, and Christians being willing to share the gospel, gave their life to Jesus, and people just wanted to use their money better? And that affected tourism, and that affected restaurants and stores. They wouldn't be happy about that. I mean, or, or what if just on Saturday nights, you know, we wanted to be up early and refreshed for worship on Sunday morning, and so we didn't go out and do whatever we do on Saturday nights. The college football was turned off at 8 p.m. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there are ways that if, if the gospel took hold in a big way, it can't help but affect certain things in the economy that will come back on us whether it's money or power, and the church maybe has more influence than the people who are in office. I don't know, I'm just saying, it's unreasonable for us to suggest that if there was a gospel revival, it's just gonna make everything easier for us. It's not what we see in scripture. It is hard to be a Christian. To desire to walk with Jesus, it creates opposition. The more the gospel witness grows, the more serious the opposition, and that opposition can grow even to threaten our very lives. This is the last part. Living for the gospel can also mean dying for the gospel. And this is where we really see the opposition become persecution in verse 19, last two verses. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So it's not just opposition to Lystra. These guys are following them around. They're they're pursuing them to Lystra. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. So they stoned Paul. And I, I, I don't know, I'm just wishing Luke had a little more, he's just matter of fact. Yep, Got up, went on, next city, no big deal, like it was no big deal. Seems like a big deal to me. He was stoned, like they didn't just like throw stones from a distance and assume he was dead. They went to him, they dragged him out of the city. They thought he was dead. And humanly speaking, he probably should have died. I think it's clear from Paul's writings to, to, to the Philippians, God just had more to do with him. He, he had, he's not done with him yet. Uh, Paul, all right, yeah, Philippians 1.20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with that full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain, remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." I wonder how much of that was informed by what we're reading here. He should have died, but clearly he knows from what has already transgressed between then and his writing to the Philippian church that there was much more for him to do. Believing in Jesus does not make our life easier. There are those who teach that God's chief aim for us is to be happy and healthy and wealthy. That's not what we see in scripture. It seems hard. There are costs to living for Jesus. But in God's providence, it is in when these costs are the most severe that he uses them to proclaim his glory in an even more bold and significant way. 
So it isn't that just God allows these persecutions and oppositions to happen, and He's not, not making us prove our worth through them or, or merit some righteousness through the endurance of them. God is actively allowing these things to happen so that we can be drawn closer to Him and His glory can be seen through us even more. I don't know how many of you are familiar with jujitsu. Is, any, is anybody, like in the first service we had a few people who actually did, okay? Some of you know jujitsu. Uh, I didn't know anything about jujitsu until last year my daughter had one of her 10-year-old friends come over who was, had been practicing jujitsu and jokingly, I said, Ada, what do you got? And in five seconds, five seconds, that girl had me pinned to the ground. Because in jiu-jitsu, they, they train you to, the size is not my advantage necessarily. They train you to use the size and momentum of your adversary against them. And that's kind of a picture of what's going on when we look at the opposition to the gospel. The larger the opposition, the more glory God actually can do through those, those circumstances. It can seem like they're winning through opposing us. It can seem like they're winning through their persecution. It can seem like they're going to threaten our very lives and maybe even they manage to take some of them. But even in our death, we are used to propel the gospel forward. It's all a part of his plan. And this was certainly true in the context of the early church. I don't think this is going to be a surprise to many of you. In the early church, when men and women professed faith in Jesus Christ, oftentimes in cities, they would, they would bring some of these people into an amphitheater with thousands of witnesses, and they would tell them, recant or die. Recant your faith or you're going to die. And we know from historical evidence that most of these people would not recant and they would be killed. If they, were, if they were lucky, they'd be beheaded, they might be burned alive, they might be given over to wild animals to be chewed apart, but they were martyred there in that amphitheater. And as they died, they praised Jesus. And there were thousands of people watching them die, praising Jesus and having a devotion to Jesus that was more significant than the value of their very lives. And as a result, thousands of people then gave their life to Jesus. We see God using this opposition in ways that, that the early church could have never planned or crafted or controlled, but God's using this opposition to propel his mission forward, which is why the early church father Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So at this point, it's easy as Western 21st century Christians to sit in this room and think, that's right, I'd die for the gospel. I'm here, I'm in. And I even had a fleeting moment of this this week. Like, oh, certainly I'd do that before deep conviction set in. Because for us, the, the, none of our lives are really threatened by the gospel. I, I feel like I know most of you, maybe there's somebody that escapes me here, but everybody I know, our lives are not threatened by the gospel. This is an academic discussion for us. This is what happens on the other side of the world. This is what happens in, in ancient biblical times, in the Roman Empire. But w we come with such confidence. You know, when we talk about giving our lives and persecution as if, like, we've got this. And you know, you know how I can tell we don't? Because the moment our power is threatened in our society, the moment it looks like a Christian ethic might not prevail in our culture, we panic. We panic and then in our panic we do very unchristian things. We gossip and we slander our authorities and we get angry and spiteful and we become the epitome of what we are not to be as Christians. 
the nature of the Christian life. It's die to sin, die to self, over and over and over again. Die to our sin, die to ourselves. Die to our sin, die to ourselves. So that when, if and when the moment comes, that we actually have to make a decision of whether we will die physically or not, well, we have a pattern of our whole life that has trained us to that moment. We are so used to dying to ourselves and dying sin that we're, willing, we're ready and we're willing. But when I look at the American church, I do not see a church that is ready and willing. If we aren't willing to die to ourselves and we are not willing to die to our sin, I do not think we can sit here with confidence to say today, I would die for Jesus. So I want to ask one question. Is your faith, and let me put it in the plural because I had my moment of conviction this week. I just have a few days on you. Is our faith real enough that we see our own flesh opposing it? Or is our faith tame enough that it never even feels like death. Because if we live a tame faith that doesn't feel like death, we think that we're gonna be ready when the moment of death comes, if and when. Here's a good test. Where are we? And it may be an uncomfortable test, but I'm gonna come after it with some really good news, okay? So stay with me. We may still live in the United States, where we enjoy religious liberty, praise God, that we do. But we also live in an environment that is incredibly polarized. And when I look around in these confusing times and I look at men and women that I respect, Christians who are humble and thoughtful and wise and godly, a common theme I see of all of them is they're getting it from the secular left and the secular right, both sides because they know that any faith that aligns perfectly with a political party is not the Christian faith. Can you die to that? And if that feels heavy, if that feels heavy, I think God could be calling you into a deeper walk with him today. And if you look around and you don't see opposition in your life, if we don't see opposition, that could mean that we're not living a life where we're dying to sin, dying ourselves, dying to sin, dying ourselves, because that creates opposition. And maybe, maybe that's a call from God to us today to be reevaluating our faith. Praise God that when Jesus was opposed, he did not give in. He didn't give in to the opposition, he didn't cave to the opposition. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew that he was about to drink the cup, that is the cup of God's wrath in our place. All the wrath that we deserve poured on Jesus. He was so stressed, he was sweating blood. He asked God, if it, if it could be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, Lord, your will be done, not mine. So to the cross he went, not to earn God's favor, not to merit something he didn't have, but to die in our place that we might be saved. In the words of the author of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, the joy of honoring the Lord by redeeming us and then sending us out to embody 
his glory and to be a part of bringing more people into his kingdom. He did that for the joy set before him. So we have a model and a motivation in Jesus. If he didn't despise the cross for our sake, why would we despise him and all the crosses that we're going to need to bear to walk with him for our comfort? We live in weird times. And I do think that by God's grace, we're not looking to be out and finding fights, but I think we will be finding plenty of opportunities to have these things tested in the coming decades. We have plenty of opportunities to present a faithful witness because God isn't calling us into just an easy life. He's calling us into a purposeful life. And about 10 minutes before I walked up for the first service, I was just hit by our reality in this season, the the already and the not yet and what we're called to be a part of. And obviously this week, the queen died. And it just brought to mind this this quote that C.S. Lewis had. He, He was a part of her coronation. No, no, he watched it actually on TV, but he was at, he watched her coronation and then a few, this is 70 years ago, young woman, And then a few months later, wrote back to his friends in America, and this is what he said. You know, over here, people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, a feeling of, one hardly knows how to describe it, awe, pity, pathos, mystery, the pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head, becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. As if he said, in my inexorable love, I shall lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. Do you see what I mean? One has missed the whole point unless one feels that we've all been crowned, and that coronation if is somehow, if splendid, a tragic splendor. So there's a splendor of the Christian life. There's a splendor, but in that splendor is purpose, and because there's perfect purpose, there is tragedy. Until we die or Jesus comes back, but God's promised that he will use it. He will use it all to draw us closer to him and to draw other people to him for the first time through us. That's what's on display in this passage, and that's my prayer, that we can all grow in understanding the opposition that we experience or why we don't experience opposition, and to be able to humbly walk through this life in a way that we can feel that purpose, and that we can see that purpose play out in kingdom fruit. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this passage, for these, this witness, and we pray, as I've already mentioned, that we would not be people that would be looking to fights, that we would avoid them wherever we can, but God, that we would be faithful to your gospel and that you would give us wisdom to know what to do when our faith is opposed. God, would you make us thoughtful, wise, winsome people, but most of all, would you make us godly? Would we be good manifestations of who you are in this broken world? God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.